So the church today is built, of course, we today are built on the foundation of the apostles and their preaching of the gospel. Uh, but of course, a question is, if you're a bit of a skeptic, like I think I naturally am, a question is, given we come 2,000 years after the apostles lived, right, and after Jesus lived and died and rose from the grave, how can we be, con- how can we be confident of the very foundation that we are built on? How can we be confident of the very foundation we have been built on? I mean, who were these apostles who preached this apostolic gospel that we now preach? Do we even know what it is? Who are they? How did they come to be? And what is this good news that saves? Well, if you are a little bit of a skeptic like I naturally am, thankfully we have scripture given to us by God. And here in the scripture that we look at today, it answers some of the questions that we raised. And of course, all of the scripture answers the questions that we raised. But in Acts chapter 1, I invite you to go ahead and turn there with me now. Acts chapter 1, verses 15 to 26. We have answers. We, we have confidence, therefore, even though we live 2,000 years almost after Christ lived, died, and rose from the grave, and then charged his disciples to spread the gospel to the ends of the earth, even though we live 2,000 years after that, we can have great confidence. So this morning we continue uh, in the book of Acts, that is the Acts of the Apostles. And we are in, again, Acts chapter 1, verses 15 to 26. Acts was written by a man named Luke, a physician turned Christian missionary. And he traveled with the Apostle Paul on his missionary journeys, some of them. And you'll hear that in the book of Acts, if you were to go, go, go ahead and read it there. You'll hear this we language. He says, we did this and we went here. Of course, Luke also wrote the gospel according to Luke. And so if you think of that as like a two-part series, the gospel of Luke can be summarized as the ministry of Jesus on earth, right? He lived, he died, he rose from the grave, right? It's covering that span of time up until his ascension. The book of Acts, you can see that as kind of like volume two. Volume two where we look at the ministry of Jesus Christ in heaven as Christ works powerfully through his spirit in the apostles to build his church. So that's basically what the book of Acts is all about, the ministry of Christ in heaven through his disciples by the spirit to build the church. And build the church is exactly what they do. In chapter one, Christ commands his disciples to wait in Jerusalem for the gift of the Holy Spirit. You can see that there in Acts chapter one. Look there in Acts chapter one, verse eight. Christ says, look, I'm gonna pour out my spirit and that will begin the church age. That's at Pentecost which is this feast, this Jewish feast that they were having there. Uh, and there, the Spirit would go on to empower the disciples to preach the gospel. One eight says, you, that is the disciples, will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and then to the ends of the earth. It's a bit like concentric circles, right? The gospel is preached in Jerusalem and all Judea, and then Samaria, that is Jew-Gentile, kind of hoppas, half half Jew, half Gentile, and then to the ends of the earth, that is full Gentiles there. And that's exactly what we see full unfold in the book of Acts. It's super cool. And, uh, you know, if you guys take time this week, I encourage you guys to go ahead and read that there. And you'll see that happening. Acts 1-8 gets fulfilled uh, throughout the book of Acts. So last time we saw the disciples, what do they do? They heed Christ's command. They go back to Jerusalem and they prepare for their mission. They prepare by praying. They pray that the hand of God would move according to his will as he accomplishes salvation history. But then we also see them preparing in a different way. We see them preparing and t- they tend to their leadership posts. 
they tend to their leadership posts, ensuring that their leadership posts and personnel are established God's way. And this, I think, brings confidence. So they ensure that their leadership posts and their personnel are established in God's way. That's the main idea for today's passage. Go ahead and look at Acts chapter 1, and I'll go ahead and read 15 to 26. In those days, Peter stood stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was in all about 120 and said, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the field was called, in their own language, Akeldama, that is, field of blood. Verse 20. For it is written in the book of Psalms, May his camp become desolate, and let there be no one to dwell in it, and let another take his office. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward two, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell to Matthias. And he was numbered with the eleven apostles. So for our first point, we have the simple fact here. Simple fact, point number one, it was God's will that there would be twelve apostles. It was God's will that there would be twelve apostles. Now just to be clear, when we talk about apostles, we are talking about the original group of men that God used to lay the foundation of the church. That is the twelve, the twelve disciples mentioned there in verse 13. You can go ahead and look in 113. You have all those, the different names that are listed there. Of course, we, we're not quite dealing with Paul yet. P2 was uh, another apostle. But here, th- these 12, or the future 12, they play a special role in laying the foundation of the church. Now, if you know your Bible, and if you simply count the number of names here, you know that they were obviously missing one, as the passage goes on to explain. There was a leadership gap. There was a leadership gap. Originally, Jesus called the 12 disciples He called the 12 disciples to himself, as can be found in Luke chapter 5. And in that passage, it's the same group of people here. It's the same group of people, minus one, that is minus Judas. You see there in verse 16, it said that that Judas became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. Now, if you're visiting with us, this man named Judas was one of those whom Jesus called to be his disciple in the very beginning. And Judas went in and out with Jesus for three years. He was in his service. Look there at verse 17. It says that he was numbered among us and was allotted, which which is really a gift, right? A gift of service. Allotted a share in this ministry. But this is exactly why Judas' wounds of betrayal against Jesus and the apostles cut so deep and stung so badly. Though Judas was, was in fact given a share in the ministry and in service to Christ the King, he used his position... And proximity to Christ and his intimate knowledge of Jesus Christ to bring ruin upon him. And so for 30 pieces of silver, he sold out the Son of God. But while he sought to gain silver in selling out Christ, it actually cost him his life. 
our pastors tell us very clearly that God judged Judas for his wickedness. So his death here should be seen without question as fulfillment of God's divine judgment against those who seek the ruin of the king. We see this in 15 to 21. Peter here, he takes the charge right before he's kind of uh, sheepish about who Jesus is and defending him. But here he's a very different, Jew- he's a very different Peter here. He stands up, he takes charge, he speaks clearly to this group which turned out to be 120 disciples, 120 believers. And did you, do you hear the language of fulfillment? Verse 16 there, it says, Scripture had to be fulfilled. Verse 20, it says, For it is written. Now we've seen this language of fulfillment of Scripture before. So for example, you don't have to turn there, but in Luke 24, verse 44, right, Jesus, after the resurrection, appears to the disciples and he tells them, Everything written about me in the Old Testament had to be fulfilled. The law, the prophets, and the writings, that is the Psalms. So his crucifixion, his resurrection for the salvation of all his people was proclaimed in the Old Testament. Right Now when it comes to Judas, God's judgment of him and then the disciples need to replace him, that too was fulfilled in Scripture. It's ultra clear, look, look there again at verse 16. Scripture says, had to be fulfilled. And then he said, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand. So think divine guidance in the Old Testament. Think inspiration of the Old Testament that spoke of this, what was going to happen here. And then it's by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who wasn't specified in the Psalms, but it's very clear that he here is sort of the pinnacle bad example of what it looks like to bring ruin upon the king. And then in verse 20, Paul gives us, Peter gives us these two examples from the Psalms. One from Psalm 69, verse 25, which Jason already read from us, for us. May his camp become desolate and that there be no one to dwell in it. So that was kind of a prayer from the Old Testament against the one who brought ruin on the king. And then we see what happens with Judas. And then the other one is in Psalm 109, verse 8. Let another take his place. Now you remember when Jesus appeared to the disciples after his resurrection. And how he said that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Right? If you think back to that moment there, one wonders if Jesus himself took them to Psalm 69 and Psalm 109. To help them understand how all scripture, how everything written about me in the Old Testament, specifically the Psalms here, had to be fulfilled. Jason read for us from Psalm 69 earlier, and you get the flavor of the psalm there. The same goes, actually, for Psalm 109. In both of the psalms there, the king of Israel is attacked unjustly. In both psalms, the king of Israel, what does he do? He entrusts himself to God and God's steadfast love, calling on God to deliver and to judge even his enemies. Listen to the prayer of the king for God to judge the ones who seek his ruin Go back to Psalm 69 found there in your uh, bulletin that was emailed, or you can just flip there in your scripture. Just listen as I, as I repeat, just a handful of verses here, starting in verse 21. Um, listen, there's betrayal here. They give me poison for food. And for my thirst, they give me sour wine to drink. Right, this is, this is speaking of betrayal, speaking of of uh, killing, of attacking, of bringing ruin upon. Then verse 22, let their own table before them become a snare. It's like what they desire, let that become the very snare that entraps them. And when they are at peace, 
let it become a trap. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and make their loins tremble continually. Pour out your indignation upon them and let your burning anger overtake them. May their camp be a desolation. Let no one dwell in their tents. For they persecute him whom you have struck down. And they recount the pain of those whom you have wounded. Add to them punishment upon punishment. May they have no acquittal from you. Among the righteous. Friends, you see that these prayers spoken of so long before Jesus came do not go unanswered. From Acts chapter 1 verse 20, what happens to the one who brings ruin on Christ the King? The one who sits on David's throne forever? The one who seeks to take him down? Friends, you see very clearly it is judgment. In Acts chapter 120, Judas himself is brought to ruin. So the very one who uses his position and his office, his intimate knowledge to bring ruin on the king, he himself is judged and another takes his office. You see here that the true king, the divinity king, the one who sits on the throne forever is actually Jesus Christ. And the one who brings ruin against the king ultimately is any of us who seek to throw off the, the loving rule of Jesus, which is exactly what Judas did. Psalm 109 reads that this person rewards evil for his good and hatred for his love. Here, Scripture says that this is Judas. This is how the disciples understood Judas' death. God was moving, right, to vindicate his name and the salvation of all of his people in Christ. And he would judge evildoers, unrepentant evildoers, all according to Scriptures. Now, from my perspective, this is intense. Divine judgment for Judas, who sold out the king for mere silver. But friends, you realize that this gets even more intense, because the Bible says that we all, apart from Christ, have sold out the Creator Lord and have sinned against Him. As we know very clearly from Scripture that God created us, all mankind, to be in a loving relationship between, to experience this loving relationship between us, where we lived underneath His good law and where we were cared for Him and had everything we needed underneath His rule. But we rebelled and did what we wanted. And so in many ways, we all, apart from Christ, are like Judas. Do you remember when you loved silver more than the Savior? Do you remember when you sought satisfaction and salvation in all that the world has to offer in pleasure in sex, in fame, in worldly significance, when Christ the Lord is the one who alone saves. Judas here, he didn't get it. I mean, there stands Christ who came to save sinners, like Judas, so that they would have eternal life and find joy and satisfaction on earth in knowing this Christ. But what does Judas see right there in that moment? Temporary satisfaction. Money. He's worried about money to deliver him from, you know, who knows, earthly difficulty. Temporarily. And there is Jesus to restore sinners to God, their creator, so that they would know life eternal, the very way that God designed it, so that they would be saved and pardoned from judgment in eternal hell. All because God loves sinners. Judas totally doesn't see it. Friends, you see that this is why Christ came? 
he knew that we had abandoned him, which is the very reason why God pursued us in Christ. And so in this gut reaction, don't think, oh, I can't, I can't, I'm not supposed to be or to sin like Judas. No, actually, the, 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 the issue is that we already have, but deliverance comes in Jesus. You think of Peter too, right? Did not Peter also deny Jesus? What makes the difference, though, between Judas and Peter? <laughs> Friends, you see that the difference is that Peter repented of his sins. He knew he was a sinner and needed salvation in Jesus. Judas, though, to the end, we have no re reason to think that he actually repented of his sin, though Matthew recounts that he changed his mind. But that seems to be more like experiencing some earthly guilt for betraying the innocent as opposed to betraying the Son of God. You see that this is why Christ came. He knew that we were sinners. And so he came to bear the sin, the wrath, and the judgment that we ourselves deserved. And so he calls us, after dying on the cross for sins, as a substitute for sinners, bearing the wrath and the judgment that we ourselves deserve. He goes out and he preaches, and he commands his church to go out and preach the forgiveness of sins to the ends of the earth. That reconciliation is possible even for those who deny and seek the ruin of him, if you would turn from your sins and believe. Judas had a choice. He did not have to continue in his sin, but yet he chose to. And he died bearing his own guilt and shame, never having known Christ. Friends, let me encourage you, if you're tuning in with us, visiting with us, and you know yourself not to be a Christian, do not make the same mistake as Judas. And remember, though he was in the service of Jesus, he did not love him. You know how you not make the same mistake as Judas? It's actually really simple. Jesus calls us to turn from our sins and believe upon him. It is through Christ that we are forgiven of our sins, reconciled to our Lord, saved from eternal damnation, and adopted into his family, where we now know his great love and his peace poured out in our hearts through Christ. Repent of your sins, and you will be saved. This is the gospel of Christ. This is the good news that the church has been charged to bring to the ends of the earth. Now, as we move on here, I do want to address, address Judas's suicide pastorally. So we're kind of changing gears. We're going to address Judas's suicide pastorally. It's a very important topic as many families are touched by such tragedy. And a good question that people have is, can a person who commits suicide be saved? More specifically, can a Christian, can a Christian who commits suicide be saved? To that, I would say yes. But before we get to sort of the general, can a Christian who commits suicide be saved, let's look specifically at Judas's life, right? This is a different question. This is a different question. Once again, because there's no evidence um, that he was a genuine Christian, that he was saved. And there's no evidence, I'm not saying that because he committed suicide, I'm saying that because he was wicked. The passage itself says, what did he do in his wickedness or for his wickedness? It's very clear there in verse 18, it is for his wickedness that he dies. He chose once again to align himself with those who opposed God the chosen Messiah. That is why God judged him. Judas's situation is very different. 
It is very different from the born-again believer who may wrestle with moments, various moments of mental and emotional challenges and confusion. For the genuine born-again believer, right, where there's evident fruits in the person's life, whose salvation, right, whose salvation has been purchased by the blood of Christ, whose sins past, present, and future have been forgiven. For that believer, not even the sin of suicide will render Christ's work on the cross impotent and ineffectual. That's how powerful and effectual the blood of Christ is, friends. If you have any questions about this, please come talk to the elders. We'd be happy to walk through Scripture and point you to some really good resources about uh, suicide. It's certainly a very important issue today. Now, let's switch gears once again in relation to Judas's death here. We talked about how God's judgment on Judas... Um, and we talked about uh, God's judgment on Judas and Judas's suicide. But now let's talk about how Scripture speaks about Judas's death. We're going to change gears again and talk about how Scripture speaks about Judas's death. As we Christians are to build our lives on the Word of God, as clearly the disciples did, we want to understand it, right? It's very important that we understand it. And certain details about how Judas died makes me want to certainly address this particular opportunity to help us all understand what the Bible says and how to reconcile what seems to be two different accounts of Judas's death, as some of you guys may already be thinking about this, right? So let me explain. Acts chapter 1, verse 18 says, Now this man, what did he do? He acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his bowels gushed out. Matthew 27, though, says that the priests bought the field after Judas tried to give him back the money. And then Judas went and hung himself in that field. So how exactly do we reconcile that? Number one, who bought the field? And then number two, how he died. How do we reconcile that? You know, again, because we, we as Christians, we want to build our life on the word of God. And so we want to try and understand it. If it doesn't make sense, if it's contradictory, like why in the world would we, would we have any reason to believe it? But as a Christian, I come to this passage and say, no, actually, Scripture is not contradictory. But instead, these two accounts actually complement one another. So think about that. It's not contradictory. It is complementary. And it is so, certainly, by the very fact that it is the Word of God who never lies, but also in the accounts themselves. In terms of the field, let's look to, in terms of the field, right? When it comes to the field, when Judas tried to give the money back there in verse 27, right? He's felt some degree of guilt. It seems more like worldly guilt because he betrayed the innocent as opposed to the Son of God. And so he seeks to give back the money to the high priest and then the others, right? But get this, they can't accept it. Imagine someone giving you money and then you just saying, look, I can't actually accept it. But then Judas runs off and then he does what he does, right? Whose money is it? Is it Judas's? Well, the high priest cannot accept it, it says, because it is blood money. There's some degree of morals, Right? They're okay to make sure Jesus dies, but they just don't want to take the money for it. Um, so that's what they do there. So what do they do with the money, right? The high priest and the other priests that they cannot use, right? It's almost like it's not theirs. Well, Scripture says that they went and bought the field where Judas ends up dying. Here's how one explained it. It said that the field might as well have been in Judas's name because they couldn't accept it, right? They go out and buy the field with really what is Judas's money, so they used, they purchased the field with the money that seemed to still be Judas's. That's one way that people have understood it. And then we turn to the death, right? 
As for how he died, many, many see the accounts, once again, as complementary, not contradictory. So in Matthew 27, it says, in verse 5, it says Judas hung himself, right? That's straightforward enough. Acts chapter 1, verse 18 says that he fell, he burst open in the middle, and his bowels fell out. Now, if you have scripture right there in front of you, look at the footnote there. Look at the footnote when it says that he fell. Um, you see that there's actually another way of reading the manuscripts. It has been taken to say that he swelled up. So it's either he fell or he swelled up. Now, again, nothing demands that we see these accounts as contradictory. They actually seem complementary. So Matthew, as I understand it, seems to be emphasizing the first step in Judas's death. That is, he hung himself. And then the book of Acts emphasizes the second step. What happens after the hanging? And as unpleasant as it is, after Judas's body lost its life for quite some time, where either he was taken down or either he fell down, um, it's either he fell down onto the ground where his bowels come out or he simply swelled up and the same thing happened. My point here is not to dwell on gory details, definitely not, but it is to help us understand the Word of God. And in this instance, the accounts do not mean the Bible contradicts itself and is therefore unreliable. Instead, it is reliable and complementary. So if you're visiting with us or you're tuning in here and uh, maybe you're exploring Christianity, I hope me talking about this, taking you know, two, three, four, five minutes, shows you that we as Christians want to, have to, take the Word of God very seriously. Part of how we go about doing this is by having you know, me and other pastors explain what it means so that people here can understand it. And uh, we hope, too, that everybody here and you turning in would be, you know, taking the Word of God seriously and checking as well to see what exactly it says. So if you want to learn more about the reliability of Scripture, come and talk to me, and I'll definitely pass you some resources. So with God's judgment on Judas, it left a vacancy amongst the disciples. And as we noted, it was God's will that there would be 12 Right, that's point number one. Then we transition to point number two, much shorter. Point number two. The twelve would be for God's use. The twelve would be for God's use. Point number two. This point here simply underscores that the apostles would be chosen by God, as Acts chapter 1 says, my servants whom I have chosen. That's God's plan, and God basically owns them. Verses 21 to 26 details how the apostles go about choosing. Go ahead and look there. But as they do... Remember here that it is all for God's purposes, all by God's design, right? Salvation by God's plan. Pouring out of the Spirit, God's plan. Their mission is God's plan. And here that there would be 12 special apostles to preach the gospel is also by God's plan. As Peter and the apostles lead the 120 to find Judas's replacement, we see how they went about finding this person. Um, go ahead and look, just go ahead and scan uh, the passage there. Um, there's a qualification that he says, and the replacement must have been a witness to Jesus' public ministry from the baptism of John all the way until the time when he went up. His, his resurrection, he goes up. So there, that's the qualification there. A witness to Jesus' public ministry, his crucifixion, his resurrection, his ascension. That's what qualifies someone to be amongst the capital A apostles. And the qualification makes sense. They would be a witness to Christ and his resurrection in order to lay the foundation of the church. They would really be able to testify to the truth that that guy that we just hung out with for three years who died, who rose again, is that same guy that we preached to you about. Now, when we think about the apostles, remember that this band of 12 
along with the Apostle Paul, who also saw the living Christ. He was also a witness, so he fulfills this, this uh, qualification here. They are utterly unique. But even more so, when we focus on the 12, they are utterly unique. And there's good reason to focus on the 12. When Christ began his public ministry, right, with the end in mind, that is the end times gathering of God's people, think Revelation, right? God had that in mind. Christ called the 12 to himself. What was the end? Well, according to Matthew 19, 28, Jesus says, at the renewal of all things, when Christ sits on the throne, so think of the end, Revelation, and the 12 disciples or the 12 disciples would sit on their thrones judging the tribes of Israel. What does this mean? The apostles, as they lay the foundation of the church, being the very first preachers of the good news of Jesus, right, they played a huge, significant role amongst the believing, the spiritual Israel, that is all those who believe, whether Jew or Gentile, as they believe in Christ. So this idea of thrones clearly communicates some sort of position of honor in the end times, right? So you have the tribes gathered together at the end times, the new Israel of God, all of the believing, Jew or Gentile, and then you have the 12 disciples held in high honor among them. That's that, why the 12? That's my explanation there. How do they choose, right? Well, you look there, the early disciples, they put forward this guy named Joseph and a guy named Matthias. Joseph has tons of names. Don't know why. My family, you know, we got some laughs out of that. Who knows, maybe as Luke was going around researching who they put forward and whatnot, or maybe he was witness there, Maybe Joseph was right there saying, hey, let's be really clear who I am. I don't, know what, I don't know how that happened. So you have Joseph, which is his Greek name derived from Hebrew. You have Barsabbas, his Aramaic name, Justice, his Roman name. And then you got the other candidate, simply Matthias. How do they decide between the two? You look there at verse 25, 26, that by casting lots. In the Old Testament, this was a sanctioned method to, to seek divine direction. And what they do is they you know, put two rocks in a jar so, you know, let's say I, my rock is this one and it's marked a certain way and Jason's rock is the other way. And then we shake it out, we dump it out, and whichever one comes out first, that's the one that gets chosen. Verse 26 says, the lot fell to Matthias and he was numbered among the 11 apostles. Now, even though they cast lots here, do not think that they went with so-called luck or chance. In the Old Testament, God's people understood that God's hand of providence was always working even in the casting of lots. As Proverbs 16.33 says, the lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. God's sovereign hand of providence was in the very choosing of Matthias. And this is especially emphasized, look there in verse 24, in terms of what it says there, right? What did the apostles do? They pray, not in the spirit of Hail Mary, Right? As if they're gambling, please let the lot fall to Matthias, or please let the lot fall to uh, Justice or Joseph. Rather, their prayer was in the spirit of the Lord's prayer, your will be done. Look what they pray. You, Lord. Right? Even that in itself, it, says it shows that they are depending upon God. They need help. And then who do they pray to? It says, you, Lord, who know and see the hearts of men underscores God's sovereignty, his wisdom, his discernment, his knowledge. And then what do they ask him? Reveal to us, because they need divine direction. Reveal to us your will. So they don't just cast lots. They cast lots underneath God's providential care for them as the Lord. So as we seek to apply this to ourselves, somebody get us some rocks because we need more elders. That's not how we should approach it. If you've been with us long enough, you know that we do not today cast lots. 
It's not because we think God is somehow less providential or he is less sovereign. Definitely not, no, friends. In the church age, we still depend on God, but in a different way, slightly different way. It's very telling that after the Spirit is poured out in Acts chapter 2, right, after the Spirit is poured out and the church age officially begins, there is absolutely no example of people casting lots in the church to determine God's will. Here, though, the Spirit hasn't yet been poured out. That happens again in chapter 2. So how do the people of God, after the Spirit has been poured out all right, at Pentecost, how do we today go about choosing our leaders in dependence upon the sovereign God? Well, we rely on the Spirit working through all of our members. We rely on the Spirit working through all of our members. That is, those who are genuinely born-again believers, those who submit to Christ, those who are indwelt by the Spirit. Here in this instance, though, how important would it be that the church would that the church that would be built, right, they would be in the future, built on the disciples. How important is it that they and we would know that these apostles were genuinely chosen by God, specifically by God, to lay the foundation of the church? Given we come after Pentecost, we rely on the Spirit, once again, working through all of our members. As we pray, as the elders recommend elders, or candidates for elders and deacons, for example, to be considered. And then as you guys, the congregation, consider prayerfully, we all consider prayerfully, and then the congregation calls and votes on our leaders. In all of that, we think that God is absolutely working in the process, guiding us by His Spirit and prayer all according to His Word. Now, if you notice, we will never be electing or calling a capital A apostle or even, even, we would never call anybody in our church an apostle. There are no more apostles in the church. No more. We are the church that has been built on the apostles. So today, there are elders that are, or pastors, right? They have a shepherding teaching role. And then there are deacons, and that role is mainly administrative. And we can see First Timothy and Titus, for example. That's it. Two offices in the church, elders or pastors, and then deacons. If you think about it, if God wanted a continuous line of apostles, there would be commands in Scripture or here to find, uh, for us to find replacements after the old ones died, right? But there are none after the twelve are reconstituted by the adding of Matthias. For example, when, when, when the apostles die, for example, in Acts chapter 12, James gets executed, and the other, the other apostles and then the church, they do not find replacements. And it makes sense that they would not. Once the Spirit had been bestowed and the twelve apostles were so clearly at the heart of the church, the renewed people of God in Christ, there would not need to be replacements because the foundation was already laid. However, of course, there would be an ongoing need, even today, to find men to preach that same gospel that the apostles did, the gospel of salvation in Jesus Christ by grace through faith in him. And there would need to be deacons to serve the church administratively. And of course, as I look out at all of you guys, I pray that many of you guys would aspire to be serving the church in the same way. Now, why do I spend so much time on this? Well, there are people today, uh, certainly in, in some denominations more than others, who might claim to be apostles who might claim to have divine revelation that trumps what we see in Scripture. What do we make of that? 
If someone comes claiming, I am an apostle, like some do, maybe more in some charismatic Pentecostal denominations, we should first say, well, there's no office in Scripture that is an apostle today, given that the church already has been built upon the foundation of the apostles. It's very important. We never want someone to claim to have divine revelation, who claims to be an apostle today, to trump what we see Scripture or what we see in Scripture. So that's why we spend so much time on that today. Praise the Lord that as we look at Scripture, even though we live 2,000 years after Christ lived and then the apostles went, began to go out and lay the foundation of the church, praise God that we can have confidence here. By the end of chapter 1, right, there's a conclusion. It's clear. God himself is bringing about his will in Jesus Christ. And then as we look back on everything that happened there, we can have confidence knowing that God's will will be done. And that the church today has been built on the solid foundation of the apostles and the gospel that they preached. We preach the same gospel. Praise God for that. And he continues to establish this church here in Hacienda Heights. And we pray that it would continue, that God's work would continue and the church would go on and people would be added to its number. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, Lord, we acknowledge that you indeed are sovereign, that you are bringing about your will. We thank you, Lord, that you do indeed call people to help and to serve your church just as you did the apostles. We know, Lord, that you gave the apostles and others to teach others how to do the work of the ministry. And you give elders to do the same, to preach the gospel, to teach scripture, and to prepare folks, to teach folks to do the ministry. Lord, we thank you that we can actually have great confidence knowing that your will be done. And for us today who seek to build our lives all on your word, we thank you that we have instruction, that we are not in the dark and we're not left groping around as if we don't know what you have said, but instead you have revealed this so clearly. Lord, we pray that we today, in Hacienda Heights, members of First Baptist Church of Hacienda Heights, well, that we would continue faithfully in the mission to spread the gospel to the ends of the earth. Make us faithful with all those around us, especially here in this international city of Los Angeles, Lord, that you would help us seize the opportunity to share the gospel with people who have never heard it before. Lord, we pray that in all things we would go on continuing to live for the fame of your great name. In these things we pray, amen.